This is the Nuance Podcast by Medicine Explained. We're your hosts, Amanda and Dan. We talk to experts on health, the human experience, and the intersection of climate and human health. We explore the nuance that's been lost in today's conversation. We don't take ads because we want to keep our information unbiased. But we do need your support. So leave a review on Apple or Spotify. And share with your friends or on social media. In today's conversation, we speak with Dr. Rose Goldman, who is Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Associate Professor of Environmental Health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. She is the founding chief of Occupational and Environmental Medicine at Cambridge Health Alliance and currently director of faculty affairs for the Department of Medicine. Her career has combined clinical occupational and environmental medicine with focus on toxicology with public health and education and has authored numerous publications. Today, Dr. Goldman explains how we know if our climate is changing, what role the fossil fuel industry has in this change, how greenhouse gases affect the environment, what effect these rising CO2 levels will have on the planet and our human health, and much more. This was an amazing conversation and very informative, and I hope you enjoy it. Now, on to the podcast. Hi, Dr. Goldman. Welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to chat with you today. We had an introductory call, and I'm super excited about the knowledge that you have to share with our listeners. Thank you for inviting me. Perfect. So we'll jump right into it. So it's been very hot this summer. How do we know that it's related to climate change? Well, that's a really good question. And so we have to start by discussing what's the difference between weather and climate. And that's a very good starting point. So weather is sort of what you were just saying day to day, frankly, even week to week or weather to weather. Oh, I'm sorry, year to year. You know, there's some years we say, oh, that was a really cold year or this was a really hot year. So we know there's a certain amount of variability. Uh, we're having a really uh, low rain spell here in Boston, where I am right now. And last year we had a lot of rain. So how do we know what's going on there? So when we talk about climate, we're not talking about month to month or year to year. We're talking decades, actually even hundreds of thousands of years, to tell you the truth. And so we have to go back and look at what is going on with the temperature on the earth, not today and tomorrow, but actually over decades or even longer. And that's what's been going on uh, through measurements, uh, for example, from the National Center for Environmental Information uh, at NOAA, and they've been doing these measurements on temperatures of land and oceans actually since 1880. And they started it in 1880 because that was actually the start of the uh, Industrial Revolution uh, when we started really burning more fossil fuels in a, in a large amount of time. And so what we see if we go back to that period of time of 1880, and you look at this data that's been put out by NOAA, 
what you see is year to year, a few years, the temperatures go up, they go down, they go up, they go down. But then if you compare how much the average temperature is going up and down and you compare it to this average temperature uh, that has been going on for, let's say, the last uh, century or from 1880 to 2019 uh, to 2020, and you look at that mean and you compare it what we see is that over time, even though it goes up and down and up and down, it's gradually going up to the point where overall the planet has warmed on average 1.1 degrees centigrade, which is about two degrees Fahrenheit. And when you talk about that as an average, that means that some places on Earth are even hotter than that average, and some places may not be that hot or actually may be cooler. Thank you so much for laying that out for us. Um, I think that's a really great perspective and um, information to, to share with our audience. I've chatted with people in the past who sometimes are still in denial that climate change is happening. And one of the things that they mention is they've been around for decades and they've lived in the same place and they never see the change in the climate. But like you said, there's fluctuations. And a lot of times it's like looking in the mirror. You never see the day-to-day -day changes, but it's a gradual change over time. And sometimes it's hard to notice. So um, That's true. But I would say that these days people are really noticing Shockingly, well, we never had hurricanes that strong here so often, or we never saw so many wildfires, or where I am now, we have in decades never seen such a long period of time without without rain. So I think that is true, but gradually and sadly, we're actually beginning to see these changes. Yeah. And I, I just recently moved from New Orleans, so definitely saw the hurricane seasons and then have moved out to California. So the wildfires are extreme. <laughs> so from one place to the next. So you mentioned burning fossil fuels. How does burning fossil fuels contribute to the climate, changing climate? Well, that's also a very good and very important question. So when we burn a fossil fuel, and what we mean by that is coal, or gasoline or oil, or how we provide electricity to power industries or heat or cool our homes and generate electricity. Uh, we're burning gasoline to drive our cars. When we burn those kinds of things, coal, gasoline, oil, there are emissions that are given off into the air. And some of those emissions are carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrogen oxides, as well as actually toxic types of gases like sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxides, and particulate matter. So that's yet a topic for yet another conversation about the adverse health effects of uh, the those kinds of agents and particulates that get into our air. But if we look at those other gases, the carbon dioxide and the methane, those are very interesting gases to discuss. And these are gases that stay in the atmosphere for years. And just to remind all of us, carbon dioxide is actually what we breathe out. We breathe in oxygen and we exhale carbon dioxide. So it's not like it's like really toxic right in front of our face. Interestingly enough, trees and when they do photosynthesis or plants, take in the carbon dioxide and they put out oxygen, which is sort of why we have the planet that we do. But here's what happens. 
Another thing about our planet is that we are a warm planet and we have oxygen and we have some carbon dioxide. And one of the reasons we're a warm planet is we have our sun and the sun shines down on the earth and it heats the earth and the ocean. But as part of that heating, some of that gas, that warm radiation or infrared radiation comes up into the atmosphere. And most of it goes out of our atmosphere. Some of it comes back down to earth, but it's very important. It's sort of like breathing, taking air in and taking air out. A certain amount of this heat has to come out from the earth and go through our atmosphere and gets dissipated, I guess, in space. And some of that heat reflects and comes back down. Now, if you imagine these gases of carbon dioxide and methane, they are accumulating in our atmosphere. And what that does is it actually acts like a blanket. And if anybody's had a greenhouse, you know how you keep things in a greenhouse and the sun comes in and the heat doesn't come out and it gets nice and warm and you can grow your plants there. So these are greenhouse gases. And so what happens now is as the CO2 and methane, particularly CO2, which is quite voluminous, stays in our atmosphere and those levels increase, it's like a blanket. And so when the heat uh, radiates up from the earth, it doesn't all get out into space, but rather it comes back down to earth. And so it creates more warming and more heat. And it turns out that since we've been using more of these fossil fuels, burning them for industry uh, uh, in the 1880s and our cars, remember that we're in cars forever. So cars have been uh, growing and populating. There was a time there wasn't weren't cars in like 19, early 1900s. So this is also a new phenomenon. And when we burn gasoline, uh, we are also putting out these types of uh, gases. And that's why uh, we call them uh, greenhouse gases because there is this effect. And so there is the thought, and we, I can talk to you about more evidence about how these greenhouse gas levels have increased and so has temperature. Yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the the science and the data behind that. So how do we know that these greenhouse gases are really increasing over time and that this increase is related to the general warming of the earth and human activities? Well, that's also a really important question because, again, one can say like the weather, the CO2 goes up, it goes down. So how do we know that anything around the CO2 that we're really seeing more of an increase in CO2 other than what we would see from natural forces like volcanoes going off or not going off. So it's very interesting that there were ice cores that were dug dug in the 1950s and going down 64 meters. So really, really deep in the earth. And these ice cores Uh, you know, you can imagine meters of this core were brought up and interestingly trapped in the ice core were these little bubbles of air. And where you cut the ice core, how deep down in the earth you go, that reflects a certain time period in the history of the earth, going back hundreds of thousands of years, actually. And so what scientists were able to do is they can take that air out. And also from the air, they can do uh, a dating of the time 
uh, of which when that core was through some special uh, dating uh, processes that they do. And so looking at these ice cores, you can actually go back and estimate, believe it or not, the carbon dioxide levels back 800,000 years to the present time. And so when you look at the chart, because they made a chart of it, what you see is yes, you see a fluctuation in the carbon dioxide levels. Um, they go up, they go down. There's a high of 300, 300,000 years ago, but then it was really lower um, when it was during the ice age. So what you see going back, back 800,000 years is yet that the CO2 levels go up, they go down, they go up, they go down. But until recently, we're talking the last 50, 100 years, the levels had never gone above about 300 parts per million, okay? And now when you we've done some readings, what we see, again, using NOAA and other agencies that do these uh, readings, in 2017, the measurable amount was 405, and it's increasing so that in 2022, the level was 421 parts per million. So what we know is that we are truly changing what is going on with this earth, because back 800,000 years, the data shows that the carbon dioxide fluctuations basically didn't go above 300, and we are now at 421. Now, the interesting part of this next question is, well, how do you know that this temperature and, and carbon dioxide rise are related? And so again, there have been further studies and models that have been done to try to show the relationship between carbon dioxide temperature and human activity. I'm not sure. I have a, a very specific question, but I know that with the uh, melting ice caps as well, because I mean, you talked about like the trapped ice core, there's bubbles of methane and there's bubbles of carbon dioxide. Is that really being released into the air at levels that are contributing to climate change? Like as we have warmed the the globe, the ice caps are melting and then more methane is being released from the I ice caps? I don't know if that's the major source coming from the melted ice, but what we are seeing, which is very important, is that the ice like in the Arctic, has covered that uh, ground, so to speak, that has buried in there a lot of dead plants and trapped carbon dioxide in the what's called the permafrost. And that sort of trapped carbon dioxide below the level of the, of the ice. So what's happening is various effects. When you're melting this kind of ice that has been over the permafrost, uh, you're not only having that ice melting and contributing to the rise in sea level, which we've just been seeing more, more and more recent reports about that, but what you're doing is besides perhaps releasing a little bit of the trapped carbon dioxide there, you are now uncovering the permafrost. And as that melts, that is also releasing the carbon dioxide. So there may be more coming from that. And then the other problem that happens is once you uncover the permafrost, which is now black, it's going to absorb 
more of the heat, whereas the ice was white and would reflect the heat off. So again, this is something that is contributing uh, further to warming and actually changing the whole uh, structures of some communities that have relied on that ice covering. Wow. So what effect does this rising CO2 and temperatures have on the planet and then on human health? So there are just many effects of this rising CO2 and temperature and both on the planet and on uh, humans. So we've already started to talk about it. Once you have increasing in temperature, you are leading to the melting of these glaciers and uh, ice. And that has been extremely well documented in various satellite pictures. Scientists have been watching the glaciers uh, contracting, uh, big ice chunks are breaking off in Antarctica. So what happens when that goes on is that that leads to a rise in the, the level of the ocean. And so we see that. So what that means is when there's storms uh, now, like I think around Boston, we're, we're at at least one inch higher level of water. When you have your usual storm that normally wouldn't come over barriers, now it's flooding. And we're seeing that all the time. You're seeing flooding, particularly in places like Florida uh, and other areas, riverbanks, because just the overall level of the water is higher. So we're seeing more flooding because of that. The other problem with the rising temperature certainly in the water, is it's changing the whole ecology of the water. Uh, there are certain plants in, in the ocean or animals that can't live in warmer temperatures. We've had lobsters that used to live and be harvested in Connecticut and Massachusetts, and they don't like it as much here, and they've moved up no further north to cooler climate, and that's happening with uh, whales. The other interesting thing is that when you take carbon dioxide in the atmosphere gets dissolved in the ocean. And what happens is there's a chemical reaction when that uh, carbon dioxide sort of dissolves into the water and reacts with hydrogen uh, water, which is H2O, and you get uh, sort of an acidic environment. So uh, we talk about acid being that there's a, a middle range between what's acid and what we call base. So acid is like vinegar and lower P, what we call pHs, and base is, is like higher, like baking powder. Uh, and so humans, we live at about 7.5, but uh, animals in the sea, they might like it a little more, um, uh, not, not at a seven, but more like eight. So just changing this environment of how much acid ions is out there has a huge impact on corals and fish, and the corals uh, support many marine life. And we humans, we eat the fish. And so we're seeing a big change in the fish stocks uh, and fish that can live and the corals that can live. Now, the other important thing, also talking about the ocean a bit, is that when the ocean gets warmer and you have hurricanes and storms coming on the surface of the, of the water, Having warmer water is like putting more fuel to the hurricane. And so what happens is it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. 
And that's one of the reasons we're seeing these incredibly strong hurricanes and frequent hurricanes. I grew up in Miami, Florida, and as a child, we would wait for that really strong hurricane to knock out electricity because then we'd get out of school, like northern kids who would get out of school with a bad snowstorm. And during my whole career, I mean, my whole childhood, I can remember maybe one really good storm when we got out of school. And then then there was Andrew when I was in uh, medical school. It was a really strong hurricane that hit Miami. I was home for it visiting. These were rare events. They're not rare now. Every hurricane season, we are seeing huge hurricanes coming through very forceful winds over 100. So this kind of warm ocean is contributing to that. And so there's a huge impact on people from from these kinds of disasters. Also, because the earth has become warmer, some of the average temperatures are much hotter. We just read about England never had air conditioners and they've been having temperatures over 90 degrees. People get very ill from being in too hot a environment for too long. And we talk about symptoms of heat stress, heat stroke. Um, it's hard for workers who are trying to do their work. Can you imagine a roofer being outside, putting in roofing material when the temperature is 95 degrees, which was not uncommon here, uh, uh, here and actually in California where you are. And once you have this kind of dry climate for a long, I'm sorry, weather for a long period of time, you're going to have things getting dried out. You're going to have more wildfires. And that is certainly something we are seeing. We are seeing more severe wildfires and destruction of property uh, and hurting people, people dying in the wildfires. And the other thing about the wildfires now is we're burning not just forest and vegetation, but when you have a whole city burned down like paradise, then what happens is you are also aerosolizing building materials and chemicals. So this is very hard for people. So we have people getting heat stress, uh, people getting uh, more wildfires, disasters. And the other interesting thing is when you warm an area, now you're going to have infectious agents that never were found there, like dengue, which would be much would need a much more southern climate or insects that could move to areas where they never were before. So we're seeing areas where there are more uh, infections. Another big problem is as the earth has gotten hotter like this, there's more evaporation of water and less rainfall. And what's happened, and we're seeing this in many locations, rivers are drying out, water reservoirs are drying out. People are going to begin fighting over, do you have enough fresh water for drinking? And when you evaporate this water, the, the clouds then hold more water like a gigantic sponge, and then what happens when it does rain, it comes down like in buckets. So we're seeing this change in what we perceive as weather, where we have long periods of no water and then huge rainfalls and flooding. And we are seeing this played out over and over again, both in the United States and other locations um, in the world, uh, such as Germany had terrible flooding like that. So we are seeing all of these effects on uh, humans, both in terms of lack of water, 
uh, people being forced out of their homes. We're seeing climate migration now, lack of water, flooding, and all of these things have a major impact on human health, not to speak of, in addition, the mental health stress of it, uh, having to evacuate your home, being worried that you're going to have flooding. Uh, so all of this is really playing out in a very distressing way for both we humans as well as the animals here as well. Wow, that was very uh, well laid out. Thank you. And I'm glad that you also mentioned uh, men mental health at the end, because um, I know that it was quite interesting to see that the recent IPCC report, the last one that they did, is the first time they mentioned mental health related to climate disasters. And we had um, Dr. Susan Clayton on who, who spoke to that, who was one of the authors of that section. So Dr. Goldman, is there anything that can be done? Right. Well, I know if you just think about all of this, it's pretty distressing uh, for sure. And as you just mentioned, uh, the IPCC report, ideally, our goal is to keep this planet from not warming more than one and a half degrees centigrade or two and a half degrees Fahrenheit above what those pre-industrial levels were. So that would be one of the goals, and that would be called mitigation. And so what we talk about in that uh, perspective would be what actions can we take or climate solutions, uh, both at an individual level, an institutional level, a governmental level, that's really going to decrease the warming? Or how can we decrease the amount of CO2? And remember, even if we stopped everything right now, CO2 is going to remain in the atmosphere for decades and actually about a third of it, 25% or a third even to 100 years. So there are things that can be done and some things that are being done. Well, one of the first steps is that we have to decrease the greenhouse emissions, that is burning fossil fuels. And one of the starting points, believe it or not, is, and it's not a sexy topic, but it's conservation. I looked at a chart of one of my colleagues that showed all the ways that we generate our electricity from burning fossil fuels to wind turbines to solar and showing where we use it at the home and in industry. But then there was a shocking part of this illustration that showed how much is wasted. Now, if I asked you, Amanda, how much when we generate electricity, how much do you think just gets wasted, put into the atmosphere? Do you think it's like 25%, 30%, 40 50 60 What do you think? I probably would have guessed 30%. Okay. Well, in his, draw, in his image, it was 60%. So we are wasting we're generating, using all of these fuels and, and sources of energy to generate electricity and then wasting it. It gets wasted over our power lines, um, our sockets that we keep open, um, the fact that maybe we keep electricity on. But basically, one of the big wastes is, is how we've built our grid. And it isn't exciting to think about repairing and investing in how our grid is working. So there's a lot of waste. So ways that we think that we can conserve energy uh, and have more efficient, uh, whether it's more efficient uh, refrigerators or whatever, that's very important. 
also not putting out these emissions, we talk about electric cars. Okay, the good news about electric cars is that the that they're not burning the gasoline, so they're not putting out burning fuel and CO2 from the tailpipe. But we have to ask ourselves, when you plug that car in, where's the electricity coming from? If the electricity is coming from some combination of solar and wind or uh, water energy from dams and waterfalls like in northern uh, Canada and northern west Canada, well, that's a good use then. We're saving things. But if you're plugging in your car to a source of energy where you have to burn fossil fuels or coal to make that electricity, well, maybe we're not saving so much. So we have to have a balanced view. We have to be bringing in electric vehicles, but we have to look at how we're generating the electricity. Now, solar uh, also, I mean, we've got a sun out there that's beating down and giving all of this free energy all of the time. So being able to capture solar energy, and now we have batteries that can store that energy and having that more available can be a very important way to be able to generate new sources of electricity or wind turbines that don't put out CO2. Now, of course, there are issues. Nothing is a is a free pass because to have the solar panels get created, you have to use metals and things like that that may be coming out of the earth. So we have to have a very balanced uh, look at that. There's also some new technology that's very interesting uh, that I'm intrigued by, not the one where we may be spraying something into the atmosphere to create a cloud, but rather there are... I'm suspicious of that one as well. (laughs) I I don't like that idea. However, there are some people in Scandinavia that are looking at machines that capture CO2. So if you can imagine gigantic fans that suck in this air and capture CO2, and maybe there's some uses for it, like we have carbonated drinks, maybe the CO2 could be used for energy. So that's one of the newer technologies um, I'm sort of um, interested in. So that's another piece is reforestation. We already know, uh, this will take longer, that the trees and plants are absorbing the CO2. This takes longer, but we have to really rethink about cutting down trees and, and how we make Uh, Food, actually, agriculture also gives off a lot of CO2, particularly grazing and cows. So rethinking our food supply and how how we grow grow things and how we try to keep in uh, uh, reforestation uh, to help with that. The other part of the equation is adaptation. So we have to realize that no matter what we're doing now, we're already going to be a hotter warmer uh, climate with more disasters. So then the question is, what are some things we can do to adapt and to prepare for warmer weather, storms, droughts, flooding? And so in terms of warming, I'm actually trying to introduce your medical uh, student, uh, resident, sorry, uh, how can we introduce like language in our uh, talking with patients. Do do you have a way to keep cool when it's hot and a, ca- a way to keep warm when it's cold, for example? Um, let people think about, uh, are you at risk? Are you in an area of wildfires? Do you have 
ways to protect yourself? Can we think about where we build our homes? Uh, maybe we shouldn't be so close to the sea. Some cities are, are raising their streets because um, they're already flooding. So having emergency plans in place if there is flooding. So I think there are a number of um, uh, projects that are going on to make us more resilient and adaptable to these changes that are uh, are coming. The other thing I just want to say is that even though a lot of this sounds very discouraging, there is a, a website called The Climate Optimist, and I don't think they're being so Pollyannish, so to speak, but it it highlights a number of things that people are doing at different levels to try to help with either the mitigation or the adaptation. And I will say another part of the latest IPCC report is that even though it is still a small portion of our overall uh, energy sources that make electricity that's in the what we would call uh, alternative like solar and uh, wind, that amount is growing. And we're seeing more and more uh, people turning to putting in solar. I think it's required for all new buildings in California. We put in solar. We have a Tesla battery we're giving during the hot days. The grid, we have an arrangement where they can drain our battery down to 15%. So we were giving energy this whole summer when it was very hot back to our grid here in Massachusetts. So I think more and more ways that people look at what they can do. And lastly, I think we have the power of the vote. If people are concerned about climate change, the real changes are going to happen at a systemic and governmental level. And we need to look at what people are saying about climate change and who is going to be there as our representatives, who will be able to do something about it, who is listening. Uh, not to make crazy solutions, but who really is listening and cares about this and who are the representatives we want in there making the decisions for us, both at the local and national and world level, particularly. I really appreciate that uh, you laid out what we have to do to reverse climate change, but also what we have to do in the meantime, because it's already a rolling ball. <laughs> so Dr. Goldman, I have a couple of questions left um, before we close here. And one of them is some preventative measures that our listeners can take. As we, at a systemic level, which you talked about, are trying to mitigate climate change or reverse it, um, what can we do to protect ourselves from smoke inhalation, from heat stress, and some of the issues that you had talked about previously? Well, I think one of the things we're we're first talking local, and you know, I I still remember uh, the the saying, "Think global, act locally," <laughs> sort of something like that. So first, at the local level, uh, I think we all have to look around and say, okay. What, what am I seeing in my environment? What are the stresses? I mean, what are the potential issues? If you live where you are, you can look around and say, okay, I need to be prepared for wildfires and drought, for example. So if you look around, you, one needs to be then saying, okay, what's my source of water? Uh, maybe during these heat times, I need to have water um, in jugs or something because we're going to run low for drinking water. If it's wildfires is a risk. I know that I had a, a relative actually on the West Coast living there, and she said she had her suitcases packed, and she was ready to evacuate 
if necessary. She didn't want to leave her home, but if necessary, she was ready to evacuate and had a plan. She had a suitcase packed and where to go. So I think one of the things is to look around your local area in that way and acknowledge what your risks are and then and then say, what should you be doing? Um, for all of us in general, in many locations, it's warmer. And so we need to understand what are the potential health effects of heat stress, which is at first feeling lightheaded, maybe dizzy, uh, not quite thinking straight, overly tired, and, and, and know what we should be doing. So for example, during this heat wave that we've had here, there were notices out. 95 degree weather in the middle of the day is not the time to go out and do your jogging for five miles necessarily. So to try to do things that if I'm gonna do my exercise earlier in the morning, if I'm a worker, I need to have scheduled breaks that maybe I didn't have before to come out of the sun, to drink uh, liquid, not just water, but liquid that has um, you know, salt and, and sugar in it, like Gatorade. And so to be able to, first of all, take precautions, uh, this comes up with, uh, with children who are on the football team or the track team, parents and schools need to be thinking about, okay, it's 90 degrees outside. What can we be doing? What can we not be doing? Um, I saw certain events get canceled here, for example, because the weather, it was so hot, it was getting up in Boston to 98 and 100. And so they canceled, they had to cancel some events, uh, sad as that is. So I think being aware of that, and if one, uh, particularly, vulnerable people, the elderly, uh, uh, ill people who are on certain medications are go and, and babies are going to be more susceptible to heat. So somebody who lives up on the third floor uh, and doesn't have air conditioning or a lot of windows, that's the kind of person who, who could really get very sick uh, from uh, heat and, and get heat stroke. And so uh, you're a resident. I think we as physicians in training and in practice, need to be helping our patients figure this out and know that if our patients are in an environment where in the summer or the hotter weather times, they could get really hot. We need to be asking people about it. Cities need to be having cooling stations. We need to be able to write, frankly, a, a prescription <laughs> for air conditioner, you know, as a medical necessity. So thinking uh, ahead about what are, are those risks. And if one is living near a river, or like you said, you did training in New Orleans, in areas where there could be flooding, the same type of uh, anticipatory thinking needs to be happening. Okay, if we get a big storm and there's a flood, what am I going to do? Um, and the cities, they, they have to have better disaster preparedness, which is what cities are doing. They're, they're doing more disaster preparedness and rescue, uh, things of that nature. And um, so I think on a local level, on a personal level, that kind of awareness and planning needs to be happening. Now, looking beyond ourselves and saying, okay, what else can I be doing? What am I concerned about? Go to the community level. What do I need to be concerned about in, in my community? I mean, it's sort of trite, but we're in this together. A climate change is not going to affect just an individual. And yes, the people who have more money may be able to do better. Uh, and the people who have less money 
We need to be taking care of them for sure. But nobody, nobody is immune from from what's going to be happening. And so uh, we need to, at the community level, say, okay, as a community, what do we see as what we need to be doing here in our community? So, for example, in Miami, where I grew up, I was reading a, a newspaper, learning that the mayor and the city council was raising the level of the streets because at high tide, water was coming up through the sewage thing. So as a community, they recognized that we have to build in a different way. And actually, those are hard decisions sometimes. Uh, people near the coast are having their houses falling into the sea. And so what we do as a community, uh, we need to be part of the to the extent that we can, part of that process. And then looking beyond our community, if someone is is really concerned, I think finding ways you can be a climate optimist or or an advocate uh, and and do some advocacy about what you think can be done. And, and it depends what your interests are and what your skill set is. Maybe if you are in engineering, maybe you could be the person who's working on this carbon capture or more efficient machines. So I think there's so many levels that we can get involved. And then if one is oriented towards policy and politics to get involved in, in that way, uh, try to go at, I have colleagues that have gone to educate our representatives and Congress people to have a talk with them, not have it so politicized, just sit down and talk like we've talked today about what the data is and, and what we're doing and what can we do without putting political labels on it. Like we need to be doing something. And so what, what are some reasonable things that we can be doing? And if one has that kind of a background or knows people to start this conversation so that this conversation really needs to accelerate uh, among uh, decision planners, because the real thing that's going to be happening is that we're, need, we're going to need to be making decisions at the higher levels. Uh, about bringing in more uh, different kinds of sources of electricity, uh, different protective measures, putting in cooling stations, and putting in the adaptive and mitigation measures that, that are being talked about both on the internet and we've touched upon a little bit in this in this talk. And um, we all we all have something we could be doing about it. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's really hopeful too, is that um, it can feel really distressing. But if you come from any background, like you were saying, engineering, policy, education, everyone has something to contribute. And artists, musicians, whatever, everyone everyone can contribute to this. Right. Well, some of the artists and musicians have either been singing about it or making art projects. I think one of the flaws that's happened is, frankly, we have not had good enough communication about it. So you're right, somebody who's a good communicator who can find a better way to talk about uh, these issues in a way that invites conversation, invites looking for solutions rather than name calling and, and uh, divisive things. I think that's really important. And frankly, everybody can have a voice. I mean, I think one of the things COVID helped us to realize is how uh, important are the quote essential workers, the people that are driving the bus every day and see the diesel exhaust coming out of the back of the bus and can't breathe. They can say, hey, I know we should have electric buses or something else. Or 
or we need a better transportation. Uh, I'm driving too much to get to a certain way. I mean, having more voices at the table to talk about what are potential solutions, how we can save energy, how we can utilize uh, different sources of energy. Uh, I think wherever you are, uh, whoever you are, there's probably some something that you might uh, think about or you might have a question about. So rather than stewing on your question, like how come this isn't just weather or natural phenomena, actually ask about it. Uh, ask to see some of these models that really show that uh, the prediction of these events that we're seeing is really much more tied to looking at models, for example, that bring in human activity and natural activity rather than just natural alone. So being able to have these conversations and working together to find actions that can uh, make things easier for those of us at a local and community level and um, better at the uh, larger level. I mean, sadly, there's going to be whole communities that are going to have to evacuate or change. And what are we going to be doing for them? I don't have an answer for that. Yeah. And that's already happening mostly in the global South, but we'll start to see it here in the U.S. as well. Yeah. Yeah. So um, lastly, we ask all of our guests to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. Well, we thinking about that, I think the future is really what we're going to make of it and that we all have a role to play. Beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Goldman. This was a really wonderful conversation. You laid out the science behind what's going on in our climate very clearly and also gave actionable steps for our listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with me today to chat about this. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Well, thank you very much. And I appreciate uh, the important work you're doing because it's through conversations like this that we can all come to a greater understanding of each other and then maybe be able to work towards uh, better goals for addressing this problem. Mm -hmm.